We will now have a reading from God's word. Romans 5, 1 through 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has given to us. Thanks for joining us here at Trailhead. My name is Steve. I am the lead pastor. Right now, we are in the middle of unpacking our our second kahaumai. And you're like, what in the world, uh, if you're just tuning in? Um, our second boast. So kahaumai is this word that it repeats three times over the course of this chapter <clears throat> that means our boast, our glory, our our rejoicing, right? So it says we rejoice in or we boast in, depending on what translation you have. The first one's in verse 2, where it says that we rejoice in hope of the glory of God, right? And and, and that's kind of that, that anchor at the beginning, like that, this big boast, this big honor that it, that is ours, right? And, and it's not talking about how we're going to be glowing, uh, like halogen lights in the sweet by and by, right? It means that, that we get to be what we are created to be and do what we are created to do in the gritty here and now, right? So boasting in hope of the glory of God means that, that once again, I, I can image God. I can fulfill the human job description here and now and in the future, right? We can, we can honor God by bearing the image of God and, and thus be crowned with the honor. Of God, which leads to our second kahalmai, uh, our second boast in verse three. More than that, he says, we boast in our suffering, right? We boast, we rejoice in our, in our pain, right? We, we unpacked this last week and, and, and outside of this context, it makes, makes really no sense unless we see that pain is the pathway to blessing, right? Like, like an athlete who is training or an expectant mother who is waiting and working, right? Pain, um, the pain we don't like is is the pain that doesn't take us to some blessing, right? Um, we, we, we want our pain to be a pathway to a blessing that, that we love, right? So hope, um, our hope of the glory of God, Paul says, gives us endurance with our suffering, right? And and our endurance with our suffering, that begins this whole chain of events, right? Endurance with our suffering produces character. And we talked last week about how this word means to be tested and made real, right? So so proven character is one of the ways to translate that. I, I just like it makes us real, right? It makes us it makes us real so that we're no longer faking and pretending and performing and 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 it just makes us real through and through. So there's this integrity between who we are out here and who we are in here. There is a wholeness, right? And as we become more real, less pretending and perform uh, performing, less posturing and competing um, it increases our hope. That's kind of the, the, where that loop comes back around, right? That, that, that this, um, character produces increased hope, right? This eager anticipation of embodying the glory of God. This eager anticipation of being crowned with the glory of God as we get to image God by being what we were created to be and doing what we were created to do. Now, we ended last week by looking at how this hope 
does not put us to shame, right? Um, this hope does not put us to shame. This hope is, is a shame killer, right? It doesn't put us to shame. It kills our shame because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us, right? Verse 5. And this leads us to our third kahalmai, which we're going to get to today, our third boast, our third rejoicing, down in verse 11, that says that we rejoice or we boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, right? The greatest gift God can give us is himself. And so let's let's follow this train, let's follow this path uh, by picking up in verse 5 and, and continuing our consideration there, right? In verse 5, he, he says, and hope. This hope of the glory of God does not put us to shame. It's a shame killer. Why? Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us, right? Hope does not put us to shame. Now, again, let's just admit hope is the very thing that puts us to shame. Every other hope puts us to shame. Why? Because it creates an expectation, right? Hope creates an expectation. And we put our boast, our joy, our, our glory, our kahalmai in this hope that, that when I get this, it's going to take me here, right? Um, and, and, and that creates an eager anticipation. And when that hope doesn't come through, or it comes through, but it doesn't deliver what it promised, we're left with a gap between where we are and what we hoped to gain, experience, become, Right, we're left with this this gap, um, and and we had banked on this gap being filled. Right, that's why we had this hope. That's why we had this eager anticipation. Right, uh, but instead of what we banked on, we got what we got. And and when our hope fails, or when our hope is fulfilled but it doesn't deliver as we hoped it would, we are exposed. That gap exposes our weakness. That gap exposes our boast. Uh, as shame. It exposes our joy as, as sorrow. Um, it exposes our, our glory as dishonor, right? We are exposed when, when what we counted on doesn't come through or when it does, it doesn't deliver like we hoped it would, which, which leads us to, to really respond to shame. There are three primary ways we respond to shame. One is hiding, right? Adam and Eve in the garden jumped into the bushes and covered themselves with fig leaves. That was that was the birth of shame, but it was the first response to shame, which was hiding, right? And some of us are, are more wired for that withdrawing and that hiding when we feel exposed. Some of us um, become more aggressive, right? We, we uh, turn our shame to anger, and, and so what we do is through competition or comparison or even just aggression, we seek to belittle others to make ourselves feel better. We seek to overcome others, defeat others, conquer others, right? So instead of going and hiding, we move against, right? So some move away, some move against, and then some move toward uh, with the idea of appeasing and winning, right? So, so they hide their shame behind um, kind of groveling or, or, or appeasing or performing in some way so that you'll like me, which, which covers my shame. All of these, I want you to catch, all of these are a response to that feeling of exposure that we hate. Th- this sense that, that I'm out there and, and I've got something to hide, but I can't hide it. So I, I hide or I move against to hide or, or I move toward to hide, right? And, and what I want you to catch from this is shame keeps us from being real. In all of these situations, shame keeps up, keeps us from, from integrity, from being real, from being whole, right? 
the humble confidence of the gospel is the foundation of this wholeness because it frees us into vulnerability. It frees us to, um, to be real instead of hiding or, or becoming aggressive in our anger or, or becoming appeasing in, in our need to be loved and, and accepted. Instead, we just show up, right? We're able to be honest with ourselves and with God and with others, right? In order to know and be known and love and, and be loved, right? Um, when I have that gap between what I placed my hope in and, and what I received, um, whether I got the hope or not, you know, it could be that a hope just didn't come through or that it came through but it didn't deliver on its promise. Either way, in those moments, I am not just disappointed with what happened out there. I am exposed in here, right? There is a gap between my hope and my reality. The reason I placed my hope in that thing out there to begin with was because I had a need in here, right? I I was hoping that thing out there was going to do something for this need in here. And, And so it exposes a gap between who I perceive myself to be, who I desperately want to be, and who I actually am. Right, um, it creates this this gap. So false hopes. We've talked about this. False hopes continually lead us to try to fill that gap with false promises. A little more power, a little more money, a little more platform, a little more applause, whatever it is. Um, and, and and here's the thing: whether we get them or we don't get them, they never fully deliver on their promises, which means they simply increase our shame. Right? Shame drives them to us, and then when they don't deliver on their promises, that sense of being disappointed or exposed increases the shame, which then increases our flailing to pretend or perform, to compete or, or um, uh, whatever. Right? They increase that, that comparing and critiquing aspect. Um, so, so here's the thing. I sense it in my bones that I am not what I'm created to be. I sense it in my bones, right? That, that this world is not what it was created to be and that I am not what I was created to be. And there's only one thing that can silence that shame. There's only one thing that can deliver me from that wound. And that's love. It's the only thing. It's the only thing that can meet us in that place and invite us out of our hiding. It's the only thing that can meet us and cause us to lay down the arms of our anger and, and, and just be vulnerable. It's the only thing that can to get us to step away from our pretending and our performing where we're trying to, to earn people's favor and, and, and make them think we're worthy and allow us just to be open and honest in vulnerability with, with who we are and, and, and where we are. Love, right? And that's the point of verse 5. Right? That's the point of verse 5, right? Hope does not put us to shame. This hope of the glory of God is a shame killer. Why? Because the love of God has been poured abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us, right? This promise doesn't disappoint because it fills the gap in your heart with love. In fact, the Holy Spirit himself comes and indwells you right? He doesn't just love us in theory. He loves us in person. He doesn't just love us in concept. He loves us in action, right? But here's the persistent power of shame. 
and, and, and why we need a promise that keeps delivering. And why we need a love that continues to, to not only kill shame, but to continue to kill shame. You know why? Because um, in our shame, we have a really hard time with love, right? In two specific ways, right? When, when I am performing and pretending, right? When I am competing and critiquing, I'm working against love. Like, like in those moments, I'm not being, I'm not looking to be loved for who I am. I'm looking to create a persona that's worthy of love. I'm looking to create an, uh, an image that provokes love, that I think is worthy of love. Right? And, and so when I'm in those modes of pretending and performing, critiquing and, and comparing, I don't want you to meet me. I don't want you to see me. I want you to meet this fake version of me. I want you to see this image of me. I want you to reinforce that I am who I pretend to be. And as a result, I am actually blocking my experience of love. Because love requires vulnerability. Like it requires me to honestly show up with all of my flaws with all of my brokenness, with all of my woundedness, with all of my hopes, with all of my fears, with all of my disappointments, with all of my glory and with all of my gory, right? I, I can't love and be loved if I'm not showing up, right? And so when I am in that mode, I'm actually blocking myself from experiencing the love of God. It doesn't change God's love for me, but it changes my experience of God's love for me. You catch that? And so what, we're, what we see here is that there's this progressive process. We have this hope that I can be what I was created to be, that God will fill the gap and actually transform me so I can be what I was created to be, do what I was created to do, right? And then he's going to transform me into that process. He's actually going to, to transform me into the image of Christ, the, the ultimate human, right? He's going to make me human as human humans were meant to be. And that process is going to require pain, which transforms, uh, which gives me endurance, um, which then makes me real. And it's in the process of becoming real that I can more and more experience more of this hope. Why? Because it's increasing my capacity to experience love. It's increasing my capacity to, to be loved by God. And as a result, Allow myself to love and be loved by others. We cannot overestimate how ridiculously difficult this process is. We cannot overestimate how deeply shame has impacted our image of ourselves and our need um, to, to, to create uh, false versions of ourselves, right? Um, uh, this world's not a safe place. And since it's not safe, I have to protect myself from um, being vulnerable. And, and that means I even have to protect myself from myself because I'm often the most cruel to myself, right? This, this process of shame. And Paul, in the middle of this cycle, is like, seriously, y'all, seriously, this is the hope you need. Because this hope doesn't disappoint. This hope is a shame killer, right? I know that every hope you've ever had disappointed you. Every hope you've ever had has put you to shame. But not this one, right? Verse 6. For 
while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Think about this. While, <coughs> excuse me, while we were still weak, right? The Greek word for weak here is strong, not Right? It's the word strength with A in front of it, which means not strong, right? So while you were pretending to be strong or attempting to be strong or thought you were strong, but you were not strong, right? In your weakness, in your inability to fix yourself or change yourself or, or, or solve any of your life problems while you were still weak, while you were, he says, ungodly. Right, which, which can be speaking to obviously this sense of immorality, right? That we were living out our sin and we were, we were, um, but I, it's really, I think, getting to the root of the immorality. Why do we do bad things? Well, the heart of it is because we're trying to ungod God. We're trying to fight, fight for our own, uh, glory, right? Marking the boundaries of our own glory, establishing our own security, defining our own pleasures, however you want to say it. We, we don't want God to be God. We want to be God. We are, while we were still ungodly. While we were still trying to ungod God, Jesus died for us. At the right time, it says. At the right time. Now, of course, it was the perfect time for us. Right? When's the right time to get a financial gift when you are in a financial crisis? When is the right time for your doctor to come in and say, the scan was clear when you've been diagnosed with cancer? Right? When is the right time to get a phone call from your kid when they've run away from home? When's the right time? Anytime's the right time. And the sooner the better. You know what I'm saying? Like when you are helpless and in crisis, it's always the right time. But this phrase means way more than it was the right time for us. It means that it was the right time for God. Our weakness was the right time. Our ungodliness was the right time. Do, do you catch what he's saying here? Our weakness is God's opportunity. Our ungodliness was not and is not a barrier to his love for us. It was the perfect occasion for his love. See, his Timing has nothing to do with our worthiness. It has everything to do with his plan. And his plan was in no way contingent on our ability to grow or to change or to make ourselves worthy of God's love in some way. Right? Our hope isn't founded on our commitment to change for God but in God's commitment to love us. Shame thrives, right? Shame thrives in, in these secret performances that we make to try to make ourselves worthy of God's love. All the little secret ways we think, okay, this is what I'll do when I do this, God will love me more. And when I perform in this way, God will, 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 will see it and applaud me. When, when God sees this, man, I'm going to be impressed with myself, which means obviously he's going to be impressed with me. Now, we never think it in such crude and, and obvious ways, but, but 
that's kind of what's going on in the background of so much of our religious performance, so much of our moral self-improvement, so much of our, if I just do this, I'll like myself a little more. And if I like myself a little more, then surely God will like me a little more too, right? Shame thrives in these little areas of secret performance where, where we're trying to make ourselves worthy. Shame thrives in our need to fix ourselves and secure by right what God only gives by grace. That somehow I can make myself worthy of this incredible gift. Right? Listen, everything we know about love in this life tells us that it's conditional. Everything we know about love tells us that we have to be worthy of it. Right? If we want to be loved, we have to be lovable. If we want to be liked, we have to be likable. Right? That, that's human love basically communicates that to us continually. Right? We have to become attractive in order to receive the attraction, right? But Jesus' love, man, it is so counterintuitive and always surprising. Take a look at verses 7 and 8. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. All right, let me, let me walk you through the logic of this, right? One would scarcely die for a righteous person. Right? We like righteous people. What he means here is, is like a moral person, somebody who keeps their word, somebody who has integrity, somebody who is upright. We, we want these people on our team. We want these people in our workplace. We want these people in our cul-de-sac. They're good people, right? They're good people. You want good people. You want predictable people. You want safe people around you, right? But you're not going to be likely motivated to die for the moral guy. It's nice to have the moral guy on the team. It is nice to have the moral guy on your cul-de-sac, but you're, you're probably not going to be incredibly motivated to, to go die for the moral guy. You know what I'm saying? Now, you might die, he says, for the good guy. And good, the, the Greek word kalos, it means attractive, right? Somebody that you have a strong emotional affinity for. Not just the moral guy that you appreciate, but, but this is somebody who's your friend, right? Your bestie. You might, you might die for your bestie is the argument. But God, God shows his love for us in that Christ died for us while we were still sinners. His choice to love us wasn't based on our ability to provoke that love. His love is not human love. His, his love is not like our love. His motivation is not like our motivation. And, and if we put the image of man on God instead of trying to get the image of God back into man, we're going to completely misunderstand God and completely misunderstand ourselves. His choice to love wasn't based on our ability to provoke that response, right? God wasn't smitten with us, right? It's not like he looked at us and was like, oh, my heart melts. I must go lay down my life for them. His, his, his love is based in his plan. It is based in his choice. He is the ultimate initiator. He chooses to love, so he loves. Now, don't make the mistake of thinking that it's not real love. That because it's based in his will, it's not also emotional. That because it's based in his will, there isn't. No, he it is based in his choice, but it's still real. Like, like he loves us. He delights in us. He cherishes us. Right? It's not just this abstract sense of, of, I love you, therefore I'll sacrifice for you, but I might despise you secretly on the side. No, his plan is based on his choice, and his choice 
is to love. Now, it is worth noting that this verse tells us that God showed his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Think about what that's saying. God showed his love for us. This would make a lot more sense in some ways if it said Christ showed his love for us. Christ showed his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. But it says God showed his love for us, right? Romans chapter 3, we were there a couple months ago, um, explores this concept that God the Father sent Jesus to be our propitiation, to be our satisfactory substitute in judgment, right? He stepped into the wrath we deserved so we could receive the blessing that he deserved, right? He died in our place as our hero, as our substitute, right? He bore the wrath of, of a just God on our, on our behalf. How is Christ dying under the judgment from God a demonstration of God's love? It's a demonstration of God's justice. It's a demonstration of God's wrath at, at in, injustice, right? No doubt about that. How is it a demonstration of God's love? Well, it, it's only a demonstration of God's love if you understand the Trinitarian nature of the cross. Right? This only makes sense if we understand 2 Corinthians 5.19, where it says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. When you understand that the death and resurrection of Jesus was a Trinitarian event, that it was God paying the price of our rebellion, right? You have God the, the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, three who's, but they're one what? One God, three persons, right? And as a result, on the cross, it wasn't just Jesus suffering. It wasn't just God the Son bearing the brunt of the wrath. It was God himself absorbing the consequences of our cosmic treason. God was paying the price of our rebellion. He took our place and paid the price of reconciliation and then invites us to receive by grace what he freely gives in love. God in Christ wasn't just demanding. He was also absorbing justice on our behalf so that we could, so that he could be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, right? So, so God showed his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, Paul in this next verse is, is really going to swing into this point with force, right? In verse nine, since therefore, we now have been justified by his blood. Pause there. There's that word therefore again. Every time we see therefore, we have to ask what it's there for, right? It's a reckoning back. It's, it's a memory back to verse 1. In verse 1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith. Verse 9, since therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, right? It follows the same exact formula as verse 1, but it changes the focus, right? From being justified by faith to justified by his blood. What it does is it shifts the focus of the equation from what we do to receive the benefit, which is simply receive it by trust through faith, to what he paid so that we could. Right Now take a look at the, uh, the rest of 9 to 10. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, the focus is on the price he paid so that we could be saved through uh, by grace through faith. 
much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Okay, so we got to see this because this is, this is driving home the central point that our shame will always be met by his love. That our weakness to fill the gap, to be what we were created to be, to, to do what we were created to do, to, 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 to meet our own needs, right? That that gap where we want to hide or, or fight or appease, he always responds in love. Always, right? Um, we got to see this, that, 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 that what drives home the point that our, that our shame will always be met with his love, that, that we can actually boast in all of our suffering, right? We can boast in all of our suffering, not just the suffering, the unjust suffering that comes from out there on here, right? But the kind of suffering I bring on myself through sinful choices. God even works through that pain. Right? That, that, that even my sinful choices bring about a suffering that God uses redemptively in, in my life. That, that God is never going to get to the point where He's like, Ooh, man, I think you're the exception. <laughs> you actually found my last nerve. You, you actually went so far. I'm not going there to meet you. Right? That's, that's the fear of our hearts. Right? That's what shame whispers, right? That, that, that if you are real, if you are honest, if you are, if you are vulnerable, and, and, and he sees you exactly as you are, you're gonna be met with rejection. Right? Because we despise ourselves, we assume God is going to despise us. Because we have to pretend to perform and compete and critique in order to be accepted by others, we assume God is, is the same, right? That somehow we're going to be that exception. We're going to be the one who, who finds that, that last nerve, right? That God's love will give up on us. Because we are so close to giving up on ourselves. Listen. He paid the price to reconcile us while we were still sinners, right? While we were still enemies, right? He says in, in verse 10, for while we were still enemies, we were reconciled. I want you to catch this. That, that's actually talking about God's enmity toward us, not our enmity toward God, right? We've already talked about our enmity toward God, that in other words, we, we're trying to un-God God, right? We're, we're not showing up as God's friends, we're not showing up as God's allies, like, hey, God, we're here to help you make this world a better place. No, we're here to un-God God, right? We want to sit in the seat of God. We want to be little gods, right? So, yeah, we're enemies because we have enmity toward God. His, his control, his power, it, it, it threatens our little kingdoms, right? So we're showing up as enemies toward God, but, but God is showing up with wrath toward toward our, in, our, our cosmic trees and our sin, our attempt to un-God God, right? The fact that we are trying to undo all the goodness of the universe. God is not morally indifferent or emotionally indifferent toward that, right? There's an enmity. The focus here is on God's wrath, not ours. The focus is on our security in the face of God's judgment, not God's security in the face of ours. If while we were God's enemies... We were reconciled? 
forgiven and received back into relationship? How much more are we going to be saved by his ongoing living on our behalf? Some commentators see here a, a reference to the eschatological day of judgment. Right? What that means is, is the future day when, when God, you know, that whole um, white throne judgment and, 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 and God brings not just judgment to Christ on the cross, but judgment to all of creation. And, and scripture does talk about this, this future day of judgment, right? And, and maybe Paul has that in mind, in part. But I think the focus actually in our passage isn't on this future day of judgment. I, I think it, it's focusing on the work of Jesus to continue every day, moment by moment, to deliver us from the impending wrath we are afraid is going to fall on our heads, to deliver us from, from shame and to make us real. Let me share this verse with you. This is from Hebrews 7, 25. Hebrews 7, 25. Um, Consequently, he, that is Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Right, so that the writer of Hebrews is talking about the same exact thing. Those who have who have been justified by faith, those who have come to God through the reconciling work of Jesus, right? He's able to save them to the uttermost. Right? Since he always lives to make intercession for them. What is Jesus doing right now? In his risen capacity raised from the dead, seated at the right hand of God, what is Jesus doing? He is interceding for us. He will save us to the uttermost. There will be nothing left unredeemed. There will be no shame left unexposed that can poison us or harm us. He will completely deliver us from our pretending and our performing and our critiquing and our competing, right? And he does this by continually making intercession for us. Now, intercession is a, is a two-way activity. So I want you to catch what's happening here because when I first read this, what, what it kind of, what I walked away with was this idea that, that God was always inclined toward wrath, but Jesus was always interceding. And so therefore I was always accepted, right? Because even though Jesus, God was provoked to wrath by my sin, Jesus was always interceding on my, my behalf. And since he always was, that wrath never got to me, right? But that is missing the point. The intercession, the reconciliation's already taken place. Reconciliation isn't a process. Having been reconciled, it's we've already been reconciled. God's attitude toward us is already set. He's not waiting to decide how he feels about us. He is not in the process of developing his opinion of who we are. He, he's already there. He is reconciled. He delights in us. He loves us. He looks at us and he sees the resurrection of Christ. He sees the active obedience of Jesus. Our sin is hanging on the cross. We're standing in the resurrection glory of our Savior. So what does it mean that he continually makes intercession for us? It means that he is continually displaying the glory of his active obedience covering us. And that is a sweet aroma to God. Not, not persuading him to be away from wrath. The wrath's already been settled. It's just a sweet aroma to God. But it's also a sweet aroma to us. It calls us out of our shame. It calls us out of our, out of our hiding and our pretending and our performing and our critiquing and our comparing and our competing. He is continually making intercession for us. 
He is continually displaying the glory of his active righteousness, of his resurrection glory that has settled the issue of our sin. And it's not about it continuing to work on God. I already did that. We've been reconciled. It continues to work on us. It continues to work on us. It is a way of us progressively being brought into our kahalmai. Right? That, that process that we've already looked at, this idea that, that we have hope in, that we have, are boasting in hope of the glory of God. But it's this process of, of being made real, right? Of, of suffering producing endurance, which produces this character that's making us real, that increases our hope, that, that continues to persuade us that it's not, that it's not going to put us to shame, that, that in fact we can put all our marbles in this basket. That his promises are worth believing. That we don't need to hedge our bets. That we don't need to keep this hope, but try to keep this one alive, whether that one is political or, or financial or, or material or relational. We can put all our basket, all our marbles in this basket. This is the one hope we need. Because in this hope, every other hope is met. That leads us to verse 11. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. More than that. That was the same exact phrase that was used to introduce our second kahalmai, right? We, we, we have our boast in the hope of the glory of God. More than that, in verse 3, we rejoice in our suffering. And now we see that same formula in verse 11. More than that, we also rejoice in God. <laughs> now, again, more than that. Our boast is anchored not just in that we get to be what God created us to be. Not just that, that God is going to remove our shame and silence our shame, and fill the gap that is between who we are and who we were meant to be with, with love so that, so that we can grow to be, through the reconciling work of Christ, bear the image of Christ, right? More than that, more than that, my boast isn't just in that I get to be what I'm supposed to be, it's that I get to be with who I was created to be with. There, there is no glory of God without the presence of God. I, I can't bear the honor of being created in the image of God if I don't have an intimate, unrestricted relationship with the God who created the glory. The God in whose image I am, I am made. His love is the foundation to my ability to image Him. I don't get blessings from God. I get the blessing of God. And in getting the blessing of God, I get all the other blessings with it. I, I am accepted and loved and delighted in by God Himself. And He becomes my boast. He is my joy. 
He is my glory. For me, for me to be crowned with the honor of bearing His image, I must be completely embraced by His unconditional love. I must be loved by God to bear the image of God. I must be delighted in by God to be crowned by the glory and the honor of God. And that means every other boast is swallowed up in this one. He is my boast. I am reconciled to God. The God who is my creator. The the God who is the original stuff of everything I love. Beauty and truth and justice and 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 creativity and and he's the original stuff see the greatest gift god can give me is not some gift from him but the gift of him right the greatest gift that that he can give me and it isn't his glory or or his power or or being um, given the, the entrusted the, the dominion of his creation, right? The greatest gift God can give me is himself. His acceptance, his love, his delight. And that is mine. Because I have been reconciled. Right? More than that, we rejoice in God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Why does it have to be through our Lord Jesus Christ? Because it's through Him we have received reconciliation. Not might receive, not will receive, have received. Because we are justified by grace through faith, through the love of God expressed and demonstrated through the blood of Christ, we can be set free from our shame. We no longer need to be controlled by our need to perform and pretend to compare or critique. We can be real. Worthy of love simply because he loves us. He is my greatest blessing. He is my greatest security. He is my greatest significance. He is my greatest comfort. And he is the one who not only loves me, but makes me worthy of love. And I am as secure in that boast as Christ is risen from the dead. I boast in God through my Lord Jesus Christ. All right, let me close with some word of prayer. And then... uh, One of our elders will come up and introduce communion. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for the opportunity this morning we have to open this word, this incredible word that unpacks for us the central blessing of the gospel. Man, how how ridiculous is it when we reduce the gospel to a get-out-of-jail-free card? How stupid are we when, when we when we just reduce the gospel to this pardon instead of recognizing that it's it's so much more that we have been reconciled that we are loved exactly as we are spirit will you right now communicate this truth 
to our hearts. Because we have such a hard time believing it. We look at ourselves and we simply have such, this, uh, such a hard time believing that we are loved exactly as we are. Exactly who we are. That, that we don't have to put on our Sunday best. That, that we don't have to make promises about change. That we don't have to, to show up with commitments to self-improvement and self-effort and, and self... Um, that we can just show up in our need. That we can show up in our weakness. That we can show up in our ungodliness. That we can show up in the genuine authenticity of who we are. And have that vulnerability, that exposure, instead of being met by wrath or rejection or condemnation, to be met by love. That's what we need. To free us from our addiction of fixing ourselves and to free us into resting in what you've done to conform us into the image of your Son. Spirit, will you speak to our hearts this morning? Awaken us to this love. We pray this in the name of our mighty Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.